Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen Having, predestined, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the reading of God's word. And thanks be to God for God's word. Thanks, Karen, for reading the Word of God for us. Hi, let me introduce myself to you as well. My name is Jin. I serve here as one of the pastors, particularly overseeing preaching ministry and Sunday worship services, along with many other duties. It's my great joy to welcome each one of you on this fall kickoff Sunday. Just to remind you what we have already talked about, Next Sunday is our kickoff gathering at the Boondock Park. And the week after, if you are a newcomer, on 26th of September, we will have pizza with pastors. And if any of you have any questions about the church or about the sermon or just want to introduce yourself, I'll be here up in, the, in front of pulpit after the service. So would love to meet many of you on this important Sunday of Fall Kickoff Sunday. As Karen has the word, read the word for us, from this Sunday, we are kicking off our new sermon series in the book of Ephesians with the theme of One Church. And we will dive into this book of Ephesians leading all the way up to Advent. So in the fall, we will dive into the book of Ephesians 
with the glorious theme of us being the one church. And today, let me take a little bit of extra time to give extended introduction about this book so that you know where we are going in the fall. So let me kind of set a tone for what we are about to study in the entire fall today. This book of Ephesians was written approximately around 60s, AD 60, more precisely, some people pin down to 62. When you read Acts chapter 19 and 20 in that, around that chapters, Paul is in Ephesus, and a lot of interesting things happen in this city. You might want to read that on your own. And Paul becomes a very successful church planter in that reason. And these people that Paul is evangelizing, sharing the gospel messages, aren't per se the people who are familiar with the Bible. The primary audience of this letter is not those Jewish people who are quite familiar with the history, Jewish history, but this is primarily written for the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. And this particular group of people were known for their imperial cult, like such as worshiping, I don't know, Artemis, Cybele, and particularly known for worshiping Augustus. They are known for their imperial cult. Imagine trying to preach to those people who has really no knowledge about the word of God, the Jewish Messiah, but they are known to just worshiping their imperial cult, and they just became Christians. It's like if I make, make modern comparison, perhaps if you try to preach Jesus Christ in North Korea, who are known for worshiping their emperor, dictator, Imagine you have to lay out a lot, lay down foundation. Uh, there's this book called The Girl with a Seven Name, written by North Korean defector Hyun Seo Kim. She writes that the, when the founder of North Korea died, she was perplexed because God does not die. They are taught that their emperor, their dictator is the God who is immortal, that she was extremely perplexed. How does our God die? That's what they're brainwashed to. And Paul is writing, in a sense, a similar audience who are known for the imperial cult, uh, worshiping Augustus. So he has to lay down a lot of foundational detail about what Christianity is all about. What is this Jewish Messiah? So in chapter 1 through 3, it's all about the core doctrine of what we believe as Christians. So now, here's a challenge to you. If you have been here for a while, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, next sixth Sunday will be an incredible Sunday for you to invite your non-believing friends. Because next sixth Sunday, we will lay down the foundational message of what Christianity is all about, who Jesus Christ is. And after the six weeks, a majority of the translation begins the chapter 4 with the word, Therefore. Four through six that we are about to dive in, it's actually the one of the most practical chapters in the entire Bible. It will truly teach us about how to be one church despite our differences. See, we introvert and extrovert don't even get along that well. Based on your Enneagram numbers, Myers-Briggs, we don't even know how to talk to one another. But this chapter 4 through 6 will teach us about how to communicate, how to give one another benefit of doubt, 
how to truly dwell together as a community, how to dwell together as a church, how to conduct your marriage, your family, parent and children relationship, your work ethics. It's like one of the most practical chapters that you will find in the entire Bible that we will dive in. And in that chapter, you will precisely learn that we are one church. A church is not just for me. It's for you, Israel Chelton. And a church is not just for you. A church is for people who might even offend you, whom you might not get along greatly. And a church is not just for ourselves. It's for all people who are in desperate need of hearing the beautiful message of Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. And that's what we will be studying in the fall. So as you progress to this entire story of the gospel in the one through three, I pray that our story, chapter 4 through 6, will truly match the gospel story, what Jesus Christ has done for us. So may we humble ourselves. May we lay down our rights and privilege rather than insisting, this has to be all about me. No, may we be so secure in what Jesus Christ has done that we lay down ourselves for the flourishing of the entire church. That's how we can be the one church. And I pray that will be the hallmark of Chelton, a church of hope, as we dive into the book of Ephesians in the fall. So today, we are diving into the very first chapter that Karen just has read it for us. Uh, this section that we are about to study, chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, believe it or not, here's a surprise for you. That's a long session, right? That's one single sentence in Greek. I'll be like, Paul, grammar, that's run-on sentences. You just go on and on and on. If you're an English teacher, you're like, what are you doing, Paul? It's such a long text. It's almost impossible to analyze that complex and difficult text, and yet it's completely dense with what Christianity is all about. In fact, in my previous church, we took entire fall to just study this 11 verse. Because that much density is in that. Obviously, we are covering entire six chapters in, this, in the fall. So we won't be able to do that. But in this section that we are about to study, you will learn that God has the master plan mapped out for your life. God really has the master plan for you, Chelton. Do you believe that? Perhaps some of us obsessive planners, oh, don't look at me, guilt has been charged. I like to plan things. I not only have to-do list, but I also have not-to-do list. <laughs> in order to eliminate any distraction, in order to execute my plan perfectly. Uh, but if we are honest with ourselves, when the little wrench is thrown in, it destroys the entire plot that we wanted to do. And we say, oh man, I don't know what to do. My plan, my grandmaster plan has been destroyed Yet when you really trust all that God has revealed in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, even when your plan goes south, even when nothing goes well, you can still trust that God's master plan cannot be thrown off by any wrench that can be thrown in the way. That God's master plan for you is promised and secure, 
And today, that's what we will be studying. So let's take a look at three blessings that God gives us in his grand master plan. Three things that we find in this text. In his master plan, he gives us this incredible spiritual blessings of his affirmation, his redemption, and his security. His affirmation, redemption, and security. That's what we'll be talking about first. His affirmation, verse 3 through 6 that we will be studying. As I said before, this letter is written to those audience who are primarily known for imperial cult worship. Try to imagine worshiping your imperial cult. You attribute your adoration to all these great gods and deity. And yet, even if you attribute your adoration... There is no affirmation back. These are not living gods. These are dead gods. You only attribute adoration, but no affirmation in return. But what does Paul write to those who recently became Christian, to these Gentile believers? Paul says, guess what? Adore, praise be to God, verse 3, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, he loved us. He affirmed us so much that he chose us in him even before the creation of the world to be perfect. That's what holy and blameless means. And he loved us, affirmed us so much that he even predetermined us to be adopted as sonship through Jesus Christ. This incredible affirmation of him to these Gentile believers is life-giving and life-changing. Why is that? This is so different from what we know and this is so crucial for even not only for the believers in Ephesus, but also for 21st century modern believers. Why is that? Perhaps I think we live in a culture where we are so emphasizing self-created identity. We often say one of the chants of this generation is, I can be whoever I want to be. Don't tell me what to do, regardless of my talent, my gift, the affirmation of others, my biology, I can be whoever I want to be. I get to create my identity. Doesn't matter what others tell me. I'm the autonomous of my own identity. So model of current modern Western culture chant is that I can be whoever I want to be. But is that true? Is there good in that? Absolutely, some good in that. I'm beautiful. I'm awesome. That's great to believe. But I don't mean to be cruel here, but let me just peel one layer here. Let me pick on you gentlemen first. Man, you said, I'm whoever I want to be. I am competent. I am awesome. I am manly. But if you really want to believe that's who you are, your identity, if your wife every day tells you, honey, you just cannot do anything right, can you? I think you're just wish-wash. If you hear that day after day, it doesn't matter what you want your identity to be created to be. When you hear that daily, you don't feel like a man. You don't feel like there's any cape. You're not a superman. Ladies, same to you as well. You say, oh, I'm beautiful. I am wonderful. But if your friends constantly tell you that you are not beautiful, I hope you don't have friends like that. And if your husband constantly criticizes your appearance, as much as you want to believe that you're beautiful and wonderful, that will destroy you. We all are in desperate need of external affirmation. And guess what? Our God gives that affirmation and identity to you. He is predetermined to love you. He has chosen you. 
He has given you everything, spiritual blessing that you need to hear. He talks about why does that matter to us, perhaps? Why do you need to hear that? And how does that marinate into our own heart? Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, perhaps most famously known for his masterpiece of The Lord of the Ring, once famously said, the praise of praiseworthy is above all rewards. What he meant by that is this. If some of you who don't know me tell me, Jin, you're great. And I might say, oh, thank you. It might go into my head, but it will not go into my heart. You don't really know me. Well, thank you for saying that I'm great. But if someone I respect, someone I love, someone I adore, he and she tells me, Jin, I think you are great. That affirmation will not even go into my head. It will go deep down in my heart. I want someone I admire, someone I adore, someone I find praiseworthy affirms me for who I am. That's life-giving. That's life-transforming. And you and I are in desperate need of that. So to the degree that you find our God beautiful, to the degree that you find him praiseworthy, to the degree that you love him, his affirmation of you will sink deep down in your hearts. If God is only this big and the words of your friends are that big, even our God tells you, I love you. I have chosen to love you. I have every blessing for you. I have all the affirmation for you. But God is this big, but your words of friends are that much big. Friends criticize you, it will destroy you. And you need the external affirmation. And our God gives us everything we need in Christ alone. Do you believe that, Shelton, today? So may I tell you, in Christ alone, you are beautiful. In Christ alone, you are loved. You are enough. And you are known for who you are. And he has seen you every flaws. And yet he has chosen to love you to death. That will give you true identity. That's what we have in Christ alone. I hope you own that and embrace that because apart from that, we won't be able to make it. Our self-created identity can only go so far, but this brand new identity that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to these believers is truly life-changing. And I pray that that will be the testimony for you and I gathering here in this worship center as well. Second spiritual blessing included in God's grand master plan before I even go there, actually, let me take even one step further. Even if, if, before I go even second point, let me take one step further. What would be the one of the apex, highest point of affirmation? It's adoption. He loved us so much that he adopts us. What does verse 5 say? In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship in accordance with his pleasures and will. He affirms and loves us so much that we have been adopted as his sons. Now, Shelton, you will often hear us say we are sons and daughters of God. And that's a right thing to say. We all are adopted into the family of God. Yet, if you are careful about what Paul is saying here, he specifically chose the masculine language only. He says, you have been predestined for us adoption to sonship, not daughtership, right? He could have said that. Why does he only say sonship? Oh, Paul, this is misogynistic. This is discrimination. Is that what this is? 
Actually, this is the exactly opposite of what you're thinking. Yes, there's nothing wrong for us to say we've been adopted as sons and daughters. But Paul is actually, by saying we've been adopted as sonship, sons, has even more love than you can imagine. In the biblical culture, usually, even if you are in the family, the inheritance only, father's inheritance only went to the sons, not to daughters. And the father's inheritance usually go to double portion to the elder of the family. So if you are born as sons, hey, you got all your life mapped out. When your father dies, you get all the money and inheritance. If you're a woman, you get nothing. What's the hope for your life? You just have to wish that you will marry a man who get much inheritance. Might as well marry the elder so that you can double portion. But now Paul is saying, regardless whether you're man or woman, you all have been adopted as a sonship. That means regardless of who you are, whether man or female, Jews or Gentile, all in Christ, you all have received this inheritance because we have been adopted. We all are included in this master plan. Not only that, when we are adopted, what's another great privilege we have in this master plan? That we have not only have inheritance, but we now have unlimited access to the Father. As Pastor Tim Keller famously once said, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a cup of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. Now, because we have been adopted, we can approach the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, anytime we want. That's an incredible love and care affirmation that He gives us to all those who are in Christ Jesus. And lastly, what does adoption also teach us? See, sometimes because Father loves us, He disciplines us. Contrary to what you think, opposite of love is not hate. Hate is perhaps simply love and care gone wrong. True opposite of love is indifference. You just don't care. Why do you discipline your kids? Let's say your kids are completely unruly doing everything. If you say, oh, I don't really care. That's not love. You discipline them because you love them and you care for them. So now, because we have been adopted to Father, even when the life gets tough, even when there's trials coming, we can be rest and assured knowing that this is not a punishment. This is not an abandonment, but he has adopted us. So he's lovingly disciplined us to bring us back to the course. That will give you poise in times of trials and in times of difficulty. That is the incredible affirmation and adoption we have in Christ alone. So today, I pray that you take that into your heart. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's what you have. That is who you are. Despite what others tell you, or despite what your inner conscience, your inner murmur of your heart tell you, I'm not enough. I am nobody. No, Christ died to affirm you, to love you. He died to make you beautiful, and you are enough in Him, in Christ alone. That's what we have in Christ alone. First and foremost, incredible affirmation. And he does all that with what? Joy in accordance with his pleasure. He didn't do that. Oh, I have to love Jen. <laughs> no, he delights in you. Do you see that? What an incredible blessing we have in Jesus alone. Second thing we find is incredible God's master plan include his redemption. Look how verse 7 begins. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sin. 
as we just read through this section, it has nothing to do. It doesn't say, in me there is redemption through his blood. It says, in him. It's all through Christ. It's verse 7, accordance with the riches of his grace. Verse 9, according to his good pleasure, his joy. Verse 10, to bring unity all things in heaven and on earth. In other words, redemption of our soul is from God, to God, through God, and by God. All because of what Jesus Christ has done. In Christ we have redemption. What is this redemption then Paul is talking about? When you read the scripture, when you find the word redemption without any qualification clause, you can typically understand it by deliverance from any external peril, difficult circumstances. But when the word redemption is used in specific with Jesus Christ, just like here, in him we have redemption through his blood, that redemption often means ransom. What is ransom then? It requires two conditions, right? Ransom is often one party is under captive or under slavery. And the price must be paid in order to release this captivity and bondage. And we were in this slavery and bondage. Second, all ransom is some sort of substitution and exchange. In order to set me free from this bondage and slavery, some sort of price has to be paid. And what is that price? Through his blood. Jesus died us to set us free from our bondage and slavery. And he paid that through his life. And he's saying, take it through my blood. This is for you. Take my body. This is for you. That's we find redemption, not in us through our self-created identity, but through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And it has given to us by him, through him, not through us, not by our works. He doesn't tell us you have to earn it. No, just receive it. Um, I don't know whether you guys have seen this movie. There's this great movie, a little bit old, called Saving Private Ryan. And the plot of the movie goes like this. Um, Captain Miller, played by brilliant Tom Hanks, was commissioned to rescue Private Ryan from the battlefield. Uh, the reason why the mission task force was created because Private Ryan had three brothers. And in a single day, the mother lost all her three sons. Only remaining person in the battle is Private Ryan. And the general, to alleviate the mother's pain, Task is eight men to specifically rescue Private Ryan. You cannot afford mother to lose all four sons in one day. So Captain Miller goes with his eight men to rescue Private Ryan from the battlefield. They go through all the battle, and in the end, in the operation of rescuing Private Ryan, Captain Miller shot, and he's about to die. He's substitution, right? He dies to rescue Private Ryan. But Captain Miller, as he dies, he pulls Private Ryan aside, and this is what he says. Earn this. Earn it, kid. Earn it. And Captain Miller dies. Movie fast forwards at the end of the movie. Private Ryan is rescued. He lived old and prosperous life with families and kids. In his old ages of 80s, he comes to the tomb of Captain Miller. He's all his family behind. And he's sobbing in front of Captain Miller's tomb. And he's seeking justification. He looks at his family. Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good enough. Tell me I lived a good life. Why does he do that? He's seeking justification. Did I really earn it? Was I good enough for his life? 
He's seeking his redemption moment here. He couldn't find it within himself. He looks for others for validation. It's a very moving and gripping movie, but as gripping as moving that it's Shelton. We cannot live like that. We cannot live our life till death. Am I good enough? Did I really earn it? Our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he did not say, Jin, earn it. Earn this. Jesus said, it is finished. Take my body. This is for you. It is freely given at the expense of his blood. So, Shelton, and those of you who are seeking for your true identity today, will you come to Jesus? We no longer have to earn it. We no longer have to seek this validation. Am I good enough? Did I live a good enough life? No, redemption is not in you. It is in Jesus Christ alone. He did not say, earn this, earn this, Jen. No, it is freely given. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's God's master plan to redeem you all by him and through him. That's who we are in Christ alone. Lastly, third, how do we know? Okay, we have this incredible affirmation, all spiritual blessing, adoption, inheritance, and he, we have been redeemed by what Christ has done. He did not say earn it, it is finished. How do I know that it's going to happen? Do you see the third security, verse 11 through 14? Do you see the type of language that Paul is using? Verse 11, it says it has been predestined, which means it has been determined and decided in advance. It's promised, verse 13. It has been guaranteed, verse 14. This is the incredible promise that God gives to all believers that it is as good as it has already been done. You are affirmed infinitely. You have been redeemed and saved. It is done and promised, guaranteed. That's what I want, guarantee and certainty, don't we? We want that certainty, and God has promised it, guaranteeing our inheritance through redemption. Now, we live in a world where everything is so uncertain that we want certainty and guarantees. And me too, I like guarantees. Now, I don't know whether you guys know this or not. I don't think any of you guys have seen my cell phone, but I have Android cell phone. Uh, but I neither confirm nor deny that I have been majorly persecuted by my colleague for having Android. I'm not going to say their name in public. <clears throat> Bill Cruson, <clears throat> John Shepard. <clears throat> but perhaps about a decade ago, perhaps I foresaw the coming judgment for having Android. <laughs> so about a decade ago, I tried to buy iPhone, actually, believe it or not. But I was a third person seminary student. I can't do that. So I saved up for two, three months to buy this iPhone. But I still couldn't really afford a brand new phone. So I went to this thing called Craigslist. Teenagers, if you don't know what that is like, it's more like Facebook Marketplace. You might not know what Facebook Marketplace is either. <laughs> Peer-to-peer exchange. Let's just put it that way. So this person contacts me. Hey, I have an iPhone. It's a factory refurbished. It's almost as good as new. I'm like, that sounds great. I can afford it. I go out to meet him. Something's not quite right. But I'm like, well, I wanted this iPhone so that I avoid the coming persecution. I want it so much. But then he keeps saying, I'm thinking, this may not be true, but he's saying, I promise, I guarantee, guarantee it's as good as new. He used the word guarantee like 40 times in five minutes. I guarantee you, guarantee you. Now, you see where this thing is going. 
I was too naive. I'm like, okay, he guarantees me. He said, he promised that this is legit. I paid my two, three months of saving, got the almost new-looking iPhones, only to find out five hours later that it was a stolen phone. Yeah, I went through contacts and found out the owner. I met the owner following day. Hey, here's the iPhone. I bought it for you. <laughs> Gave it to her. <laughs> Walked away. So I'm having Android and being persecuted by my colleague even now. <laughs> But why was I deceived like that? Because I wanted a guarantee. You're telling me this is legit. I promise you. I guarantee you. Guarantee you. I wanted the certainty so much. And he keep telling me that. But that wasn't guarantee. It was hoax. It was deceptive. He was lying in the end. He just took my money. So how in the world do we know that what God has affirmed us, what God has redeemed us, how do we know those are true? Because did you realize verse 7, verse 11, it all begins by in him, in him. In fact, the en Christo, in Christ, the phrase is repeated 27 times in the Ephesians. And that is the very theme of entire Pauline letters. If our redemption, if my affirmation is all in me, I give up. My feelings change every day. There are days that I feel like I am awesome. After preaching, perhaps five minutes later, I feel like I'm nobody. There's no redemption in me, but all is in Christ alone. That's how you know it is secure. It is guaranteed. It is promised. It has been predetermined. You have been chosen, not because of how great you are, but because it is all in Christ alone. Chelton in the fall. How can we move away? How can we lay down our rights, our privilege, and truly love one another? How can we truly be one church? You have to be so secure of who you are in Christ alone. When you know that you have been infinitely affirmed by those one who is most praiseworthy and loving, when you truly know that I am enough, I am loved, Christ died to pay ransom for me when I was in captive. When you know that, now you can move to love others, to lay down your rights and privilege for the flourishing of a whole church. That's how we can be one church. Children, our Lord Jesus Christ under Christ, he has affirmed you to death. He loved you that much. And now we have been adopted into the family of God. Even when the trials and hardship comes, you no longer have to fear because that is only loving discipline of our Heavenly Father who loved you, who gave up His Son to tell you, I love you. You are enough. I am pursuing after you. And by His death, He has redeemed us through His death on the cross. So for those who are seeking your true identity, don't look within. There's no re redemption in you, but look to Christ and Christo. In Christ alone, there's redemption and salvation, and it is secure, as good as it has already happened, because it is done all through Christ, all by Him. Now, all we can do is rest and enjoy this glorious spiritual blessing that God has given us, and that's his master plan for your life that cannot be shaken, that cannot be thrown off. So even when your plan becomes to falter, when you become weary, will you rest in Christ alone today, Chelton? He has affirmed you. He has redeemed you. And your future in life and in death is secure. 
because we are in Christ alone. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we need you. God, while you have affirmed us to death, loved us to death, while you have adopted us, while you have promised all inheritance, access, why? Why do we run away from you, seeking validation within? Oh Lord, give us that blessed self-forgetfulness and help us to rest in you today. May your affirmation, may your redemption, may your death that secured it all truly pierce through our hearts. So, Lord, to the degree that we marinate ourselves to the foot of the cross, what Jesus Christ has done, we believe that we will change day by day. And, oh, Lord, as a result of being so secure in you, would you allow us to lay down our rights and privilege and serve one another, love one another, knowing that we are a church not just for ourselves. We are here to care for one another, love one another. So, God, we commit our entire series of Ephesians to you this morning. Do the mighty work only you can do. God, we look to you. Meet us where we are at today. In your precious name we pray. Amen.